Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. Welcome to the Ask Stephanie radio show on the Coffee Clutch Network. I'm so excited to be hosting the show so I can bring you special resources to help you become a more informed and confident parent. Tonight, I'm especially excited to interview a friend and a colleague of mine, Dr. Sharon Gilbert. Sharon is a pediatric neuropsychologist who's going to be talking to us about neuropsych evaluations and why they can be so helpful when you're trying to find out more information if you have a child who is struggling. So I introduce to you Dr. Sharon Gilbert. Hi, Sharon. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So happy to have you tonight. I really am excited to share with parents um, the information that the two of us have been talking about. Um, And I think that parents sometimes don't really even know what a neuropsych evaluation is. So that really is just let's start off with that so that parents can find out what what it is. A neuropsych evaluation is a process. It's a process used to help understand brain function, thinking and learning in children. And oftentimes we can't map out an individual's brain function by x-ray or CAT scan or PET scan. So we use a number of tests, whether they're tests involving pens and and paper, uh, interactive tests, more hands-on tests, interview with parents, interview with children, interview with teachers, classroom observations, all to understand how a child is thinking, learning, developing, and feeling. Neuropsychology is the subspecialty of psychology and concerned with how brain functioning directs and impacts behavior. And oftentimes, parents will seek a neuropsych evaluation because there are concerns about their child's development. Thereby, consulting with a neuropsychologist over a number of different hours to understand the nature of a child's strengths and weaknesses. Right, and I like when we had spoke, I I loved what you said about it really mapping your brain function, which... I like I like that term because I think it's something that it's, it's something that obviously parents can't do. So you know I think that that it it makes it makes sense to us. And that way I think parents, it's so important to see their child's strengths and weaknesses through a test so that parents can know what to you know what to evaluate. Well, it's um, objective data. We use objective data that really is compared normatively 
to children all over the United States to understand where really your child identify. Born? Like, it's like just for example, like what are some of the things that it would identify with the child? Well, oftentimes parents will come to me with concerns regarding learning or development. Typically, a typical neuropsychological evaluation will involve baseline assessment of IQ. We need to understand a child's cognitive potential in terms of how they're thinking and processing language, how they process visual information, how how they sustain their attention, how they how efficiently is their brain working. Those are the four components that make up what's typically thought of as general intelligence. Right. We and it's use, really so and accessing this IQ is it's not just to say like, okay, I want to find out how smart my kid is. It's really to find out what's going on so that you sort of have a baseline. Is that what it is? It's 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 a foundation and we look at strengths and weaknesses in terms of patterns of performances. And these the the typical IQ test is the Wexler Intelligence Scale for Children. And it's comprised of fourteen smaller tests. We look at performances and scores across those tests to look at what's called scatter. So those are differences between tests, um, whether they're in the same modality, either verbally or visually. The assumption is in a perfect world, our brains will function evenly. So if your child is performing in the average range on an IQ test, we assume that your child should be getting average grades in school if your your child is of school age. Right. That being said, nobody is perfect, and all of our brains process information unevenly across modalities. It's only when, let's just say, your child performs significantly below expected levels on a reading test as compared to their IQ. So if your child has an average IQ but is performing in the borderline or very, very low average range on, an I, on, a test of, on several tests of reading, that raises a red flag and can cause concern with regard to your child's ability to acquire the fundamentals of reading. Or maybe it's a reading disorder, of course. Right, right. Which parents, I, I think that right. I think that that's key. Is that you're seeing it's a, it's the red flag that the parents really need to see. So you said that there's a lot of a lot of different tests that go into this. How long does this testing take you or take whoever's doing the test? Like just so parents have an idea of what's really involved here. The the hours involved varies from age to age. So a, a three-year-old is not expected to, to come into the office without a parent. Oftentimes a three-year-old is accompanied by a parent, and testing might be 45 minutes a shot. So it might be five sessions of 45 minutes each with the child in the office. In addition, there will be meetings with teachers, classroom observations, meetings with parents. A school-aged child typically... Formal testing, and what I mean by formal testing is assessment in the office, either working with a neuropsychologist or a technician in the office, might be somewhere between six and ten hours of testing, never done in my practice in one shot, usually done over several different sessions. Because, I mean, a child would never be able to sit for that. No, and usually kids fatigue, and we want to be able to get to know your child, and repeated visits helps us do that. Okay, got it. So I think a question that I found and I was asking you is why are children referred for neuropsych evaluations? I mean, why why the neuropsych? Why does it? Why do we need to have one if if we're a parent whose child is struggling? What would be the reason? Well, typically, children are referred for a neuropsych based on 
a long history of difficulties. If, and, it, and it varies from age to age. So a preschooler might come to my practice because parents have had long-standing concerns with regard to their development. A preschooler might have difficulties sustaining attention in class, might not be able to sit in circle time, um, might be disorganized, be in, in, in the space of his, his or her peers. Predating that, there may have been concerns in terms of meeting those developmental milestones, acquiring language, um, acquiring other basic skills, at which point in a preschooler, a teacher might say, okay, we're having trouble with your child in class. We'd like you to seek guidance and insight from a professional. And that person might go to, the family might go to a pediatrician or they might go somewhere else. Oftentimes we'll wind up in my office. Similarly, with a school-aged child, oftentimes what happens is there are referrals based on a learning development and learning and acquiring basic skills, whether it's in reading, writing, and math, and really meeting appropriate guidelines as set by 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 the schools. Sometimes okay, so wait, I a, actually have a question. So we yes. talked about preschool and school age. What are the actual ages that people, like what's the range or what's the typical age that, you know, is there like it's too late or it's too early? What what like just so parents have an idea, you know, a guideline. In my practice, I I start evaluating kids when they're three. There are psychologists who will do evaluations for infants to assess their meeting their developmental milestones, infants and toddlers, I should say. I start because we at keep the hearing like early intervention, early intervention, early so. intervention. Sometimes when when children when when babies are born prematurely and then they're followed. After birth, they are assessed, and they're assessed at three-month intervals to track their progress over time to see if they are meeting their milestones. For me, in my practice, I usually start evaluating kids when they are three years and up. And oftentimes, at three, the testing is very different than testing a child who is six or seven. So are there different tests that are administered, or is it there's one set rule and this is these are the five tests, these are the 14 tests, you know, or is it that you decide based on the child's IQ level or how they present to you? Is, is, how does that work? There are hundreds of tests, and oftentimes okay. I feel like a kid in a candy store because there are so <laughs> many to choose from. A right. typical eval will always involve assessment of IQ, and there are standard IQ tests. There is testing a test battery called the Stanford Binet, which many people have heard of and are familiar with. That's a big assessment of intelligence. There are the Wexler series of tests for intelligence. However, let's just say a child comes to my office and is completely nonverbal. And whether that child has had a brain injury and is aphasic and can't speak, or whether in fact that child has not acquired language, I will assess IQ, but I will use a test that's only only accesses nonverbal visual skills to work around the disability that the child presents with. Got it. So, and then there are, once IQ is assessed, and I always assess academic achievement to see how a child is, is, is learning and, and what, what your child has, has acquired um, in, in school. From there, I will do more specific, what's called neuropsych assessment, and those are very specific tests of either attention, planning, learning, memory, Uh, what's called cognitive flexibility. That's how fluidly your child is processing information. And ultimately, I always reserve as my last session an assessment of emotional functioning because we can never rule out the overlay of one's feelings and their impact on 
on thinking and learning and being. Right. Well, and um, we talked about this. I mean, sometimes I think there's either comorbidity or it's where I, I, children present as ADHD and the parents, you know, it's ADHD, it's ADHD, the child is having issues with school, with teachers, and then sure enough, it's that the child actually is a highly anxious child. And there's, you know, it, it, it's hard for a teacher or a parent to decipher. And I think that that's when these kinds of tests sort of, they help you use that red flag to be able to say, well, this is why the child is having anxiety and and this you know and this is this is this is the test that the child is struggling with or this is why because well it might be a little bit of both oftentimes what happens is i i'm asked to to differentiate between what in fact is emotionally driven and what is cognitively driven and i you, we can't separate the two oftentimes there is an interplay between a child's feelings about learning or there is the child's own internal anxieties or internal noise, I like to call it, is interfering with their ability to, to function. And really important to note is a disability or a, is considered something that interferes with your child's daily functioning. So mm-hmm. it's interfering with your child's ability to develop at an appropriate rate. Now, going back to the emotional piece, if your child is sitting in school and preoccupied internally by angst and 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 nerves and exactly. whatnot, right? It, they will likely present as inattentive. So that might mean that we have to kind of peel away to understand why your child is functioning that way. On the, at the same in the same way, right. and are they nervous depressed. about something that happened at home or is school exactly? Or is it and that's because why they don't really... know they don't know the schoolwork or they can't get it done. Exactly. And also, just in terms of depressive diagnosis, oftentimes we look at scores and we see that scores are really depressed, meaning that they're all very low. A child might be a slow processor. When you're depressed, you're lethargic, you're slow. So we will Mm -hmm. oftentimes look at how the scores are presenting, how your child is performing on time tests in conjunction with their performances on tests of of emotional stability, and that might be use of projective testing, use of um, self-report questionnaires, other standardized testing that's used specifically geared towards kind of getting in the back door to your child's emotional well-being. And I actually have, you know, an important question because we talked a lot about younger children and, you know, when to start. But I was actually just talking with a mom the other day who was interested in having her child. She knew that I was doing the interview with you, and she was interested in having her child um, evaluated. And he was actually a middle schooler. And had she was concerned because she hadn't, she hadn't ever had him evaluated before. Do you see that typically where kids in middle school or high school they, they, it's been missed. They were the gray area kids, the kids that it just sort of slipped through the crack. Do you is that is that common for you? Yes, many times. I actually get a lot of kids in my practice who are in fifth grade and who have made the transition. They're either in fifth or sixth grade, made the transition to middle school, and all of the so sudden, how is that? Like, how do they do that? How is it missed? Well, these it's are just, kids who are smart. really smart. Oftentimes, okay. and, and I really want to to remove the stigma from a learning disability because children can be extremely bright and have a learning disability. So oftentimes 
kids who are extremely bright are able to develop, and they do this reflexively, they, they develop compensatory tools to mask their difficulties. And what happens is your child goes to fifth grade and the workload becomes significantly greater. The expectation in terms of level of independence, your child's expected to switch classes, to manage his or her binders, uh, to be able to stay on top of his or her work without being monitored by a parent or a teacher. What happens? If your child had a vulnerability, your child may fall apart. On the flip side, same with a learning disability in terms of oftentimes I'll see kids in fifth grade who start struggling with reading comprehension and they're not understanding. And they're, ultimately that might point to either a dyslexia that is more content-based or the fact that your child had never really mastered the fundamentals of reading and now we see how it's presenting. In so they were smart grade. enough and able to pull it together enough, but now all of a sudden challenges, the, the classes get more rigorous, and now all of a sudden it's, it's when parents, as they get older. So I, I think that's important for parents to realize it's, it's never too late. That it, it's it never can too be late. Picked up. And even in high school, I have many high schoolers also who present in the same way. And it, it's a hard battle to fight because oftentimes fighting an adolescent who's who's frustrated and doesn't and, and and is having difficulty in school and feeling lousy will be resistant. So it's 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 a challenge in, in every way. Right. And, no, I and, think that's and, and, and I think that that's important and, for parents to realize that, you know, it's sometimes parents think it's they're challenging, they're acting out, but it could be that they're feeling a lot of stress and pressure and they've been able to pull it together and now now can't. So, you know, I think that's important just to realize that at any age, you you can get help for your child. So here's another question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, who should parents see? I mean, is it is it a pediatrician? Is it a neurologist, a psychiatrist? Uh, I mean, part of what I do is just sort of help parents and guide them and what route they need to go to. But I think parents are so sort of confused about which is the like appropriate person is it your school i mean where do they go who who have to explain to us oftentimes parents will go first to their pediatrician because their pediatrician is that person that can direct them and you're, in right, and you're hoping that they're going to be the guide they're going right. to give you and, the guide and typically baby. pediatricians do not diagnose learning disabilities they may diagnose an attention deficit and they base their diagnoses on questionnaires that are completed by the parents and questionnaires completed by the teachers. Sometimes the behaviors and the presentation is so pronounced that a diagnosis is pretty clear cut. When it's not as pronounced, questionnaires are not sufficient to make that kind of diagnosis. And the pediatrician might make a recommendation for a specialist to work with your child. A neurologist also can can complete an evaluation, and the evaluation is more of a screening. So the neurologist might screen for a dyslexia by having your child complete, do some reading or do some writing. They may, do, they will do a neurological exam, so they will do more of a physical exam. They will examine um, tone and coordination, Brain attention. Function. Yes, att- attention. Sometimes, in fact, recently I had a child in my practice have, um, have a, an EG, because there was questions about sleep and about alertness. Another very important question is sometimes parents will come to me and I always ask your, that your children have a hearing test 
and have a vision test before completing any neuropsych eval. Because if your child is actually having hearing problems, yep. that may in fact be the reason why they're not able or to Or even an eye doctor. Are they reading? Same. I, vision, I, yeah. Exactly. Vision problems. And even oftentimes I will get referrals from ENTs because children who've had their adenoids out or have had tubes in their ears, it can make Just a aren't huge... able to pick up the information. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Language development is so much in, in, intertwined with hearing. If your child's not right. hearing, he's not developing his language. Right, um, and how much they missed if they weren't hearing is also imperative. Exactly. Just also, get. I just want to get into the school for a minute because yes. we were talking about this. I mean, I, I, you know, I think sometimes, and I'm, I'm just curious, the advantages, the disadvantages to having and, and a the testing done in the school, what's, a, what's available and, and why it's different for, you well, know, if you were going private versus speaking to the school? Sometimes, and more often than not, schools will be your first, they're, they're your eyes and ears in terms of how your kid is functioning. And oftentimes, to have your child evaluated in this school can be profoundly helpful. Helpful. However, it'll get them on on board with you, and you know if you do fi- if the findings come out the way you want it to. Well, exactly. So typically, schools are required to assess for learning disorders, and what that means is that their their school based assessments are typically assessment of IQ and assessment of academic achievement. They are limited in scope. Yet, if your child is really struggling in those areas, particularly in reading, writing, or math, a school-based evaluation may may be sufficient. And and also, r- let me remind you that a school eval is is, is for free. Right. Your child and that and parents who are listening, and I, I think that is so <laughs> important that you know, yes, it, if there is issues, then it, the evaluations can be expensive. That going to your school is is an option and it's free and it's if you can get your school on board and they do f- have findings that your child is going to be given a lot of you know whether it's a 504 or being in the learning center there's so many advantages that your child can get that getting your child your child's school on board is key the teacher the school room you know that all of, all of those the classroom teacher it's very important well absolutely and i also think that you know, being able to have a program that involves the school is really critical. And whether it is a building-level service that is mandated under under a an IEP or whether it's something that is less formal is critical. So and then I have, know for you, if you're, like, I mean, if you're working with a family, your goal is to also culminate and work with the, the teachers and the school also, correct? Absolutely. I mean, so a collaborative effort a, is is critical. And I, I, and I tell this to parents all the time. I really believe that a program, a remediation program, cannot be effective if all parties are not involved. And that means that parents are emailing with teachers and teachers are emailing with tutors. Everybody is on the same page. And there's really, we're generalizing the tools that we're using across domains and across right. and not just for academics but working with your school for children who are having anxiety, OCD, ADHD, dyslexia, they need emotional support in the school as well because absolutely it's, it's, it's imperative counseling. That's a service offered under individual individualized educational programs. 
a school school counseling. And a school counselor, again, is that person that can provide the school-based support. If your child is struggling in school, your child is really struggling in life. And imagine that you're you're going to work every single day as an adult and you are struggling. Imagine the impact that has on you emotionally. So it's, it's no different for your child. Right. No, I, I. it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you sort of sometimes have to put yourself in your child's shoes, which can be difficult because they can be difficult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially when you have more than one child. But I think, you know, we sometimes take for granted, we think that it's school, 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 academics, and there's just a lot on their plate. And we have to be able to feel what a child feels if they're struggling, that it's not easy. And if if the schoolwork isn't easy, everything else around them isn't easy also. There's right. And it's also hard for that, a child to articulate their the nature of their difficulties. Right, especially the age. You know, at any age it's hard for a child, but depending upon the age. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so... It, they get their results, they get the, the testing results, they get their IQ results, the parents, and what do they do from there? The whole point of having your child evaluated is really to devise an intervention and remediation program. We need to identify the nature of the problem in order to design a program. Typically what happens after all the testing is done, I invite parents into my office, we review the test results ad nauseum, and I make very specific recommendations that will involve school-based support, support outside of school, whether that's with a speech and language pathologist, a, a learning specialist, either a reading specialist or a math specialist. It might be a social skills group. Uh, it might be parenting support, um, a program that is really comprehensive and across different it's teamwork. Settings. Absolutely. And the whole point is we use these results. I always tell parents to take this document, take the document that is the written report summarizing the results, take it with you to your school, take it with you going forward because you are are your child's best advocate. I will often accompany parents to the school to make sure that their child gets the services that he or she needs. Sometimes we use test results to Place a child. So if your child is struggling in the public school system and a more contained class is not sufficient or the supports available in your school, your child's class or, or school are, are not sufficient, I might recommend a more specialized setting. So we will use the right. information that we have from the testing to move forward. And whether that's specialized for emotional support, specialized for learning and academic support, it depends Any support on, that a parent could get for a child is is key. They need support, you know, at, at, at any at, at any level, you know. Yeah. So I I, I can't. I, it's it, we could go on forever. And unfortunately, I have to sort of start to wrap this up. And I, I encourage parents to email us and um, let. Well, I'm going to let you know where we're available. Um, but before I do that, I just I want to thank everyone so much for listening this evening, and I want to thank Dr. Sharon Gilbert for taking the time to speak to us tonight. You're brilliant. You have such – I mean, you could go on forever, and, and, and people should really take advantage. I know you're very available by email. Um, as we know, parents' knowledge is power, and when you're advocating for your child, it is so important to feel confident that you have the information that you need. It's going to help tremendously with – speaking with your schools and your teachers, your doctors, your friends, even family members, you feel empowered. And I think it's 
important, I wanted to get this across, that it is so important to remember that our children don't need to be the best. We live in a world where it's the best, 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 and it's so competitive. And I think sometimes parents get very carried away with that. But I think parents need to realize that their children need to be the best that they can be. And you should just always aim for them to to function at their maximum potential. I think that's all that parents can ask for. So um, at that point, I just I also really wanted to thank Marianne Russo from the Coffee Clatch for giving me the opportunity to bring the Ask Stephanie show to the Coffee Clatch. I am so grateful, and I look forward to bringing you many other wonderful experts and doctors this year. I have uh, a lot of people lined up that want to be a part of this. So um, please visit please visit uh, the Coffee Clatch website, www.thecoffeeclatch.com. And, Sharon, if you would share your email, uh, your I'm sorry, your website with us. Um, sure. Please, um, visit me at drsharonegilbert.com. I'm always happy to answer all of your questions. Great Thank being here so tonight. Thank you so much. And, and also, uh, please visit my website, www.askstephanie.com. A-N-I-E dot com for any questions that you may ha- have regarding this episode um, or, or any other questions um, that would be that would really be great. And I really appreciate all the listeners. Thank you very much for tuning in tonight. I think it's so important for parents to just get as much information. When your child is struggling, you feel alone. And when you feel that there is someone to listen to you and someone to give you information, it just, it really helps. And it's going to make you a better parent or a better teacher for teachers who are listening to realize that, you know, any information is is important. So remember that knowledge is power. So again, I want to thank everyone for listening and Good night, Sharon. Thank you so much. Good night. It's Thanks been for a having pleasure me. speaking to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having us tonight. Good night. Bye. Good night.